0: You are listening to UBC Waco podcast. (laughs) Are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track. To be a friend is to delight in someone's presence in your life, to care enough to get to know them as an individual, and to want what is best for them. I look for friends who laugh, who love, and who care. Um, Someone that I have had a uh, mutually satisfying interaction with at some point in my life. To be a friend to me means to be loyal and to have someone's back. Just be able to be there for each other and um, fulfill each other's needs um, to the extent that you're able to. Just being able to listen to them when they need it and just have fun and enjoy life together. I think shared values, shared experiences, values, meaning, have taken on a new meaning for me, I think, um, recently. I would look forward to people that are that I feel like safe with and that would maybe have some of the same interests as in me, something that and like maybe are funny or uh, people that you would want to be around. I look for welcoming, loving and supporting communities that I can associate with positive experiences. Just acceptance and um, openness to being able to discuss topics that may be hard for me as an individual, just feeling open and like I am able to talk about anything that I need to and I can share that with the community that I have. I want to feel that people have an enthusiasm for getting to know me and walking through life with me, a sense of belonging and platonic desire. I don't think community is scary. I need it. I have to have it. Um, Probably partly because I am one of those people that thinks everyone is my friend. I need to know who my community is. And I personally do not think that community is a risk as long as it is done well. Community does feel risky, especially for me because I rarely have my intensity and enthusiasm for pursuing friendships or community matched by others. What makes me nervous in my community is the amount of people I have to put my trust into. In some ways, it does depend on what you're talking about because if you're talking about your personal life, if you just throw that out there, you never know what people are going to do. But if it's something like, oh, do you like football? Or do you watch this show? certain show then that would be a little bit more safe because no one can really make it that big of a deal but if it was like your personal life then you wouldn't really want people to just be able to just do whatever and just put it out there great answers buddy thanks for sharing Well, good morning. Uh, if you're new to UBC, we're glad you're here. If you're always here, we're glad you're here. Toast's <coughs> um, not here to do announcements today, so I may interject a few here there. We're, of course, trying to solicit different voices from the community, and we're doing this series now talking about our values, uh, first one being community. So uh, if you have any interest in sending me kind of blips on an iPhone of answering questions that I will... Uh, prepare for you, reach out, because I also have to do this awkward thing where I ask people and they say no, and I say, no, really, though, you probably need to do this for uh, the church and for us. So uh, if that's you and you want to talk about, I don't know, generous orthodoxy in the next few weeks or vulnerability or any of these things, stay tuned. The other thing is this, um, I don't really have a, a decision for you on this yet, but I just, I, you know, maybe this is what town halls are for, but the immediacy of which the pandemic brings things to us. Um, I was on a text with the leadership team this week. People just, some people asked about we have a chili cook-off after church next Sunday. Of course, um, I've also read articles that said the pandemic's going to be at its very worst in Texas at the end of January. Um, and, you know, I think if if we were to characterize UBC's approach to this throughout the thing, it's been Of course to be um, cautious and there I think has been wisdom in that and and we have not regretted that. Uh, Nonetheless it it has cost us. I mean if you look around and and just in terms of who's here still. Um, So I did want to say this, um, both of those streams are always pouring into the decisions we make so look for um, a word on that probably late next week. Um, But more than anything I just wanted you know that we are talking about these things and we continue to process these kinds of decisions even if we're not always advertising the choices we make. Okay, we're going to talk about community today. Uh, as you know from maybe history of listening to me, I, I have a few podcasts that I'm regular on. One of them is The Armchair Expert, and part of that just seems to be this natural synergy, symbiotic relationship I have with Dak Shepard. Um, I've named these before. Before he's, he's from Michigan. I grew up in Wisconsin. We're both dyslexic. Um, he, uh, he, he loves what he calls, uh, he's a unifile. He loves prestigious universities that he couldn't get into. I, too, do uh, like those. He went to UCLA. I went to Baylor. Both R1 institutions, in case you were wondering. Um, he loved uh, he, he was in Parenthood. I loved Parenthood. His wife, Kristen Bell, was in the um, Veronica Mars. My wife loved Veronica Mars. He owns a diaper diaper factory in Waco. I have children that consume diapers in Waco. The, the uncanny nature of this is, is just really too much to talk about. So anyways... Of all the episodes he's ever had on, uh, my favorite guest he had was Lydia Denworth. I've talked about her before. She wrote a book called... uh, She's a scientific journalist. She wrote a book called Friendship, the Evolution of Biology and Extraordinary Power of the Fundamental Bond, Life's Fundamental Bond. Um... Starts talking about what we know, which is that, um, sociologically speaking, there is proven value of friendship. This is as old as Aristotle and Plato and the way they talk about cities and the way we gather and the uniqueness of this. Um, But then uh, what she's interested in doing is, of course, biological. So we'll start there with some observations and work backwards. This, by the way, is a lot of data on the front end of the sermon. Just hang with me. Um, Primates live in the largest socially cohesive groups. And of them, of course, humans are the largest of those. And all of our archaeological discoveries... We've never found a human who presumably lived by themselves. Um, We always associate evolution with survival of the fittest or the best or the toughest. Now there is increasing uh, energy and discovery around the survival of the friendliest, those who learned to cooperate and the benefits that come out of that. Uh, There is a lot of theories about how and why the human brain developed. One theory that is growing in popularity is the complexity of social interaction. To have 200 individuals that you know and are able to locate them in a social network is incredibly complex. Beyond that, the amount of neural um, neural connections that are required for something like empathy we now now know is is really complex. Um, But this is where it gets really fascinating. There are studies, uh, which I will talk about in a second, that now suggest that friendship is maybe one of the most important health factors in your life. Um, I have this theory that people scoff at that doesn't get taken seriously. um, Well, I have a lot of those. But, uh, and, and mine is this, there has to be some kind of actual benefit, health benefit from me consuming both Mountain Dew and or whiskey. And uh, the reason I say that is because, you know, these release endorphins and they say that happiness is good for the soul. And I know that they're not great for you, but I was thinking like in terms of counteractive. Well, now studies show I'm kind of right. Uh, This is a stretch, but hang with me. Um, I go to the doctor annually and I get a report card. Uh, Here's my report card. I'm great at sleeping. I'm pretty good at exercise-ish. Uh, terrible eater. Chips and salsa and ice cream are like 10.30 at night, you know? Uh, I drink too much according to the suggestions, people, although I'd say that Wisconsin presents a different set of data. And um, anyhow, my labs were great. Uh, a little anemic. Uh, triglycerides are high, but coming down. And, um, uh, you know, other than that, uh, I'm doing pretty good. Kidneys in good shape. The question then is, um, how can I be so healthy? Uh, blood pressure, cholesterol, kidneys, all that crushing it. My answer is friendship. I know that I'm supposed to be humble, but I'm a baller at friendship. That's all of you. Uh, Being friends has made me healthy. Uh, Lydia Denworth cites a case study which watched smokers over the course of 10 years, and they came to two conclusions. Those who had good friendships statistically had a better chance of making it to the end of that study than those that don't. And the study concluded that good friendship was as important for your health as quitting smoking. Think about that. Then she talks about a meta-study, which is a study of studies, right? So they had six data sets. They did one with 134. From that study, they uh, concluded that quality of friendship had a bigger impact on longevity than obesity, exercise, sleep, all of it. It became the number one predictor of long-term health. Another interesting fact, um, they did a study of, of baboon mothers, and they found that um, the the biggest predictor of an offspring's longevity was the social connectedness of the mother to other baboon mothers. Uh, Which leads me to a point that we've all known for a long time, and that is this, it takes a village to raise a child. Uh, You ever go on vacation? And it's you and maybe another family or, or, uh, or other friends. Sets and there's this deepened sense that there's extra pairs of eyes on your children. There's a direct relationship between your stress level being lowered and that kind of communal approach to to friendship and life. So, um, some scientists started to ask, "Is this all really true?" Um, one theory was social support, and that is this: like if if I'm if I'm a living in a house and I fall over and break my arm and the break inhibits me from getting up and, and calling a doctor and if I were to just lay there forever I would die if I live with somebody the chances are that they're going to come and see me and so just the, the odds of getting help that way are better um, but what they've discovered is that this is not true of other species so um, there are some species who in fact don't call doctors in fact all species except for humans don't call doctors um, but nonetheless their, their social enterprise and their social existence has statistically proves that it's better so why is this and scientists have now shown that friendship improves cardiovascular function, immune health, cognitive health, mental health, even our cells, the rate at which our cells' uh, age slows down because of friendship. Uh, They did a study on 80-year-olds and found that the number one predictor of people's health at age 80 was their satisfaction with their friendships at age 50. Now, (coughs) a word to the introverts out there. Uh, We haven't had a Wednesday Adams sermon illustration in a long time. And part of that is because during the pandemic, my daughter Mabel aged into big church here. So I need to be a little more discriminant now how I use these things. Um, but I'm going to draw on Mabel here today, and hopefully this, well, I'll get a review after church today, both from my wife and from her. Um, Mabel needs fish like or Mabel needs people like fish need a bicycle. Um, I spent some time praying and thinking through a discernment process and came up a, with a list of what I'm going to call Mabel's loves. Okay. And and here it is. At the top of that list is Lindsay, my wife. Then there's otters, Harry Potter, her friend Anna Polk, Roblox, Minecraft, all other animals. Me, I think. Lily, her sister, sometimes. Chipotle. And if we got all the way down to like 487, we might find human beings and a human existence. Um, Now here's the thing. If you take off this list, my wife, um, her sister Lily, and me, uh, two of those which are questionable even on the list... Um, you have one being, in her, human being in her top 10. Thank God for her friend Anna Polk or she might opt to live at the zoo. Uh, here's my point. Introverts, you just need one quality friendship for all of this to be true. So don't back out of the sermon yet. One or two is better, but if you just have one to dry you out of your goth cave, that's fine. Um, you need a pal or two. Um, I could keep going on the data forever because I love it. My theological point though is this. God is one person in three. God's very nature is social. You were created in the image of God. So for you to become fully yourself, you must belong to friendship. You were designed for it. Uh, I mentioned last week, and I don't know if I actually cited, uh, it's a concept I got from Brian McLaren. I don't know if he invented it, his his evangelism book, which he wrote back in the early 2000s, more ready than you realize, I think. But his suggestion is that um, people need a sense of belonging before they can have a sense of believing. And the reason that that's true, I think, is very obvious, because beliefs don't change people. Relationships change people. I've been a pastor now for 15 years, um, and I can tell you that at the end of the day, the largest reason that people stay at community or come in the first place is for a sense of connection. People will endure a lot of bad preaching, a lot of bad music, a substantial lack of natural lighting, if they have friends that they go to church with Um, I have a friend, I won't say who uh, he has a TV show on the Magnolia Network Um, as such, he's seen a lot of the country and when we first met years ago we were having dinner and he he said something to me obviously not with my ego in mind at all but he said, look, you live in New York you go to Central Park for community you live in the South, you go to church to find community and I think that's true churches, for better or worse are largely the brokers of social connection here in the South but there's something more I think there's a theme that has emerged among the remnant that call UBC home after all these years. People that have made it home here seem to have done so because they've realized that uh, though they may be theologically agnostic on so many issues, on like Calvinism or dispensationalism or cessationism, maybe even something like your your theology or your posture towards the Bible, uh, what people have discovered is that they have very strong feelings about how you treat your neighbor. And for better or worse than the last five years, we've figured out with acute differences um, just how much that that approach to neighbor love matters to us. Um, So there has been more, to use a a crass term, sheep shuffling in Waco in the last three years, I think, than there has probably been in the previous 20. Uh, Taken together then, the gift that the church can offer is a place to belong where people have the same worldview. And that can make for a very potent cocktail. But we should say something else about this potency. It can also make for grave disappointment. I uh, I spent some time thinking about which text to select to come underneath this concept of community. And I thought about Jonathan and David, and I thought about Jesus and the disciples, and Lydia in Acts 16, providing her house as a space. And I thought about Paul and Timothy. Um, and I picked Acts 2, yes, because of the implied ethics. Um, they make it very clear, I think, of how intimate this community was, but also because it seems on the face of it, uh, it was open to everyone. And I think that that has to be an essential part of Christian community. But I also pick Acts 2, because what we discover as we read the scriptures is it wasn't perfect. We know about Paul and his letters that he ends up fundraising for this community because eventually the five loaves and the two fish ran out, right? Woodstock was over and somebody had to go get a job. My point is this. In short, I think sometimes Acts 2 runs the risk of being over I mean, if we're honest about Paul's letters to the churches, they're mostly about solving problems. Take Corinth, for example. It's a port town where everybody's got a sailor's mouth and pretty skanky morals, to be honest. Uh, Here are just some of the things that Paul addresses in the letter. Claims of spiritual superiority over one another, suing one another in public courts, abusing the communal meal, sexual misbehavior. Uh, I sometimes hear people remark that they would like to get back to the ways of the early church, and I want to reply and ask which one. Because let me decode them for you. The problem in Galatia and Ephesus, and to some extent Colossa, is racism, by another name. Uh, In Thessalonica, everybody's lazy because they believe in something like the rapture or the imminent return of Jesus. And Philippians, well, they get off the hook, but they're responsible for a lot of really bad modern Christian t-shirts. So we're going to take them with that. And if Paul passes the microphone to John, the list just gets longer. John takes all seven of his churches to task with the exception of Philadelphia, which is on fire for the Lord, my translation. If all of that dysfunction teaches us anything, it might be that, yes, Acts 2, 42 through 47 is beautiful, but we also have to reckon with the fact that it's a snapshot. That's not to say it's not a model or that it can't be a model for us. But... Uh, I think you need to take it with a grain of salt. That's, you know, like if you watch Star Wars and you quit after episode one, you might think that Anakin's a pretty good guy, right? Um, I think what I mean to say is this, whatever else we believe about the essential nature of Christian community, we should also build in this expectation. You can be disappointed by it. Uh, Let me take a shot at vulnerability. Um, Conventional wisdom suggests that pastors should keep a certain kind of relationship with parishioners, uh, to speak plainly. Sometimes pastors are told that it's unwise to be friends with your parishioners, and and I've really blown past that, and um, it's helped that I've allowed to be pretty candid and honest about my own sin and failure from the pulpit, and UBC historically, I think, has always had a really healthy um, expectation about what her pastors are and what they aren't, Um, so I would go to other pastor meetings, and I would listen to my colleagues lament their loneliness, and... And so as not to sound arrogant, I would sort of keep quiet and thank God for my situation. And and for 10 years, I got a drink with a group of friends um, that grew to eventually, there was seven of us total, six friends, parishioners here. Every week for 10 years and we went camping and, and we shared raw details of our life. It was very intimate and then one of them disappeared. And um, he very politely, kindly, finally asked me to lunch. And through tears, he told me that he couldn't worship at UBC anymore. And, and I was hurt, but there was a gracious moment and we moved past that. And his move gave courage to another friend in that group who soon followed. And then we made a decision in 2019 and two more of those friends had to leave the church and then another followed and the last of them. Well, he's sort of been a casualty of the pandemic, not, not literally, I mean, in terms of his attendance here. Um, so I would be lying if I pretended to you that through that process, I didn't get hurt. Um, I have to be honest enough about that part of my ego, but I also understand that none of them intended to hurt me and that, truthfully, some of them got hurt by the church. Nonetheless, I chose to stop going and getting those drinks, and that's because I didn't know what else to do with my pain. That was that. Seven months later, the pandemic began, the world changed. Time spent with one another became a luxury and a calculated one at that. And now we have emerged, kind of, as a different people, our community muscles, I think, are atrophied. While the world has picked up pace, our social instincts, I think, remain confused. Now, in the spirit of being a really great Baptist pastor, I'm gonna conclude by giving you three points. Number one, you've changed during the pandemic. I once heard Richard Dawkins explain, and I don't know the language, but if you look in a, a desert and there's sand, it's like these sand drifts, I call them. And if you watch them, they slowly move across the de- desert-like waves. And his point was that, you know, in the course of a few years, this, this drift, which has, has shifted, has essentially reconstructed, reconstituted reconst- uh, con- itself completely, even though it looks like it's the same thing that's drifted. So, too, he was making the point, your body reproduces every cell within it. I don't know however many, 7 or 17 years or what he said. I didn't fact check it. he's a scientist. supposed to be right. So, anyways... Um, But you are you, but you're a completely different person on on the most uh, simple level of your your existence. Uh, A trivial reality that might uh, point to or testify to the truthfulness of this is that uh, our taste buds, we know, our palate changes every seven years um, with the exception of some immortal substances like Mountain Dew. That'll always be around. But uh, taking what we know like with epigenetics and how trauma affects the body, what we learn from Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, there is no doubt that you are a different person than you were two years ago. As such, it's probably safe to say that your social needs have changed. You might all prefer animals to people now, I don't know. (laughs) Second point, community takes effort. Do you have that friend with whom when you see him or her, uh, you can let your hair down, you can show up in pajamas, Uh, the beer flows like wine. Right? Um, the, the inside jokes don't stop. Uh, when you're talking, time ceases to exist. There's a clear history that you need not recite to make sense of the present conversation. Uh, the ease with which you move through that relationship took investment to achieve. It took phone calls and texts and traveling together. It took bringing chicken soup to each other's house when you're sick. It took sitting in silence and being comfortable when there was nothing to say. It took fighting and making through it. It took Inviting them over when you didn't want to clean your house And then it took getting to a place where you knew you didn't have to clean your house Community takes effort third point community takes vulnerability Jeff Hall uh, did a study he interviewed 355 adults who had moved within a six-month period and here's what he found It takes about 40 to 60 hours to move from acquaintance to like casual friendships It takes 80 to 100 to call someone friend. It takes over 200 hours spent together to move to that category of best friend. But it's not just the time because people also reported that um, they spent four to 600 hours with coworkers for whom they very much still considered acquaintances. The number one predictor of that change from one category to the next was vulnerability. Taken together, then you've changed. Community takes effort and community takes vulnerability and the fact that you need community on the most profound level of your existence, namely your Trinitarian social God-bearing soul wanted to give us a tool. Uh, As we were planning as a staff for this year in the beginning of December um, we were just asking questions about what the church needed, who we want to become, and uh, something you've probably articulated yourself either in your head or to to somebody else if you've been here is that um, okay we've all got deconstructing down. Uh, We would love to to start putting something back together and and UBC you know I think will always be a place to, to allow people to do that. It's just who we are. But um, so Taylor offered this language of of moving past our freedom from to something like freedom for. So here's a tool for the tool belt as you move forward in effort to rekindle Christian friendship. Uh, The podcast Invisibilia has done a series on friendship this year. It's been fascinating. They did an episode called Ghost Friendship or Ghosting Friends or something. And what it's about it's about those friends for whom, when you have an exchange to get together, that, that exchange or that text exchange turns from weeks into months months into a year, and all of a sudden, without realizing it, the, the thing has sort of dis, disappeared. And so they were asking questions about when people do to this to us and, and why this happens. Uh, they also cite this interesting statistic that 70% of your adult relationships, even the really good ones, on average, won't last more than seven years. Our romantic culture has done a really great job of cultivating, I think, something healthy and being proactive about communicating about the status and nature of those friendships. But what if we did the same thing with friendships? I'm going to play you a minute-long audio clip from that episode on Invisibilia about people who have added this to their tool belt, and then we'll conclude. Emily told me a story about a friend from years ago. Basically, she was feeling neglected, like she was way down on her friend's priority list after his wife, his kids, and other obligations. Mm -hmm. But instead of breaking up completely or doing the fade-out, you know, the avoiding thing, She and her friend decided to sit down and talk about ending the friendship they had. Wow. And maybe start a new kind of friendship. I think that's the only time I've ever had any conversation like that. And I remember saying, I get it. You have a lot of family demands right now. And I said, based on that, I'm going to walk away here a little bit. We're still friends but I'm not going to prioritize this friendship like I did because I don't think you can either. And how was it received? It was fine, and we understood it. He and I are still friends, but he's not in the inner circle. And I'm glad I did it. For the record, Emily's not saying friends should never break up. That can be healthy and necessary, of course. She's saying, let's normalize friendships ending— And let's normalize conversations around different options for how they can end or transform. Uh, Brene Brown has this phrase that I've heard a lot of people say recently, which is clear as kind. Um, And certainly, one of the tasks of discipleship is to learn how to be a truth teller. What if we were courageous enough to do this with our friendships? There'd probably be a lot less resentment, a lot less bitterness. And probably those friendships that have changed would have a better chance of surviving in a way that's manageable and helpful. So I wanted to give you that tool. Um, I also just wanted to end by giving you some really practical advice. My wife and I, Lindsay, referenced this article that she read years ago. I feel like it was from like 17 magazine, but surely it wasn't. Uh, Hopefully it was better than that. Um, It was probably, you know, some kind of whatever magazine. And it was, uh, you know, seven, six friends, whatever that everybody needs. And what it suggested was that um, you need a mentor. And you also need somebody that you should be investing in. You also need a fun friend, somebody like who you have nothing to do with other than like you go to six flags. And it doesn't have to be complicated. You need a stimulating friend, somebody to to challenge you and to help you develop worldview and to think with things that so you need a soul-bearing friend, somebody who you can just lay it all out there with. And you need a life situation friend, somebody who's also got a one-year-old and a three-year-old in a movie man that doesn't quite work and and a spouse who doesn't really pay attention and makes you angry, somebody to lament all of that with. Um, because I'm a nerd, I always process things in terms of Lord of the Rings, so I'm always like, ask, who's my Gandalf, you know? Who, who's my Sam? Who's the court jester? Who's my Pippin? I'm Aragorn, obviously, but, uh, you know, making sense of that. Um, but you do you, you know? Maybe it's like Sex in the City. Who's my Sam? You know, Who, who's my Charlotte, my Miranda? I don't know, I never watched it, but uh, some of you stuck in the 90s, you're looking for a Ross and a Rachel and a Joey. And a Z. Uh, my point is, we all need friends. At the core of your being, In the most theologically profound way and a God-bearing soul way, you were designed for friendship. So UBC, may we be a community that does the hard work of being honest with our friends. May we reach out in vulnerability. May we take risks. May we find in one another the experience of the divine perichoresis of mutual indwelling. And in our friendships, may we find that God is accomplishing the drama of our salvation and the transformation of our hearts and our minds and our bodies to make us look more like Jesus. Uh, I want to pray, as I always do at the end of the sermon, but I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, Mayor Meek has emailed church pastors and asked us to be praying intentionally for the city, and so um, I'm going to name these names, and I'm just going to pray together with you, but this week we're going to keep in mind our city manager, Bradley Ford, uh, Jennifer Ritchie, who's our city attorney, um, our our chief of the fire department, uh, Gregory Summers, and our, our chief of police, which is Cheryl Victorian want to name those names. Um, so as I pray for the city this at the beginning, I'll then pray for the sermon, and we'll continue with silence. Uh, God, we thank you for the city of Waco, and we confess that it's not perfect, but we confess that we're grateful for it and that the space we abide and, and belong to matters, and we're grateful for the city. We're grateful... FOR THE WAY IT'S GROWN, WE are CONFESS THE COMPLICATED NATURE OF GROWTH, um, ENVIRONMENTALLY AND SOCIALLY AND ALL THE OTHER WAYS, um, and, AND YET WE, we WANT TO BE a PEOPLE WHO ARE MINDFUL OF OUR LEADERSHIP. LEADERSHIP IS LONELY AND IT'S HARD, AND WE FEEL LIKE WE HAVE GOOD LEADERS. AND SO TODAY WE, we LIFT UP THOSE NAMES OF THOSE FOLKS IN THESE KEY POSITIONS AROUND THE CITY OF WACO. Um, we, WE ASK THAT YOU WOULD SEND THEM PEOPLE ACROSS THEIR PATH WHO ARE ENCOURAGING, WHO LIFT THEM UP, WHO, who GIVE THEM GLIMPSES OF OUR GRATITUDE AND, and JOY AND APPRECIATION and that they would have your peace, and that they would have your wisdom as they lead and govern the city of Waco, Texas. Uh, God, we pray in our own lives that you would do the work of friendship, that you would uh, take us down the the difficult and and meaningful road of of community, and that you would would tool us to do that well, that we would be a people who honor one another with our friendship. But God, we confess that as those made in your image, we need community, and we want to grow in community. So we're asking for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of the worship time, we like to sit in silence together and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the Spirit will minister something new, or perhaps the Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly. So let's listen together in silence.